It's great to be here with you this morning, as always. Um, if you're new to our gathering, if you're new here in person, maybe it's your first time. Maybe you've watched online for a while, but it's your first time being here in person. Um, some of you, maybe you're tuning in online for the first time. Uh, welcome. My name is James. Um, I serve as one of the pastors here at Freedom Village. It's, uh, it's truly an honor and, and a privilege that you would choose to worship with us today. Uh, there's a lot of great options in our city, places where you can worship, where God is glorified, where the word is taught. Um, and so just the reality that you're here um, means so much to us. I hope that you're, you're blessed by this time and, and encouraged by the worship and the teaching of God's word today. Um, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to the book of Esther. Uh, we'll be in chapter 5 today. Uh, Esther chapter 5. Let me say this as well. This is off my notes. I don't usually do this right in the beginning. Um, I was telling the, uh, the volunteers um, in the beginning, um, before we even, like, anyone was in here, you know, it's one of those days today, you know, you wake up and, um, yeah, the cases are high and all that stuff. They have been, right? But it's one of those days where you come out and you just think, man, maybe I should stay in bed. Like, today's one of those days. Like, the weather has that feel to it. And so, like, I walked in today and there was maybe, like, six people in the room and I walked in the sanctuary today, and I could just like feel it tangibly. I'm like, oh, like I need like a blanket, you know? It's like one of those days, one of those mornings. And so um, as I'm even just standing up here, I was thinking even for myself um, and for you, um, it's so easy to come into a space and, um, and to go through a routine and for this to become like really lethargic. Um, like, okay, we got to get through the next, well, it's Pastor James, so it's going to be somewhere between 45 minutes and 52 minutes, something like that. You know, 55 if I'm feeling, you know, spunky. Right? Um, but I just got to get through this, and then, like, what's next? Like, lunch, it's a soup day, you know what I mean? Like, oh, it's a soup day, and what are we going to do, and whatever. Like, maybe it's a movie night, right? It's easy to come here and have that mindset and that mentality. Um, and so I just want to encourage you, um, and even, even me right now, before you even start, um, let's not have that posture. Um, let's not, let's expect God uh, to speak through his word um, because he does, right? That when we open this, um, when we open his word, um, even now it's before you, that it is living and active and, and breathing, that it has something to say to you, um, that it is transformational if you allow it to be in your life. Um, and so we should, we should sit here as we even, as we open, and even I say, turn to your Bibles, there should be this anticipation as you flip to that spot to say, God, what do you have for me today? God, help my heart, help my heart to be open to receive whatever truth you have for me today. If it's going to be conviction, let it be so. I need that, God. If it's encouragement, and that's what I need right now, let it be so. So let, let's go into his word with anticipation, with, an, with expectation that he will work, he will move in this place this morning, regardless of how dark the clouds are outside, amen? Okay, so let's go into this today. Uh, I, I've said it throughout this series that, that the name of God and, and even the idea of God is not mentioned in this book at all. God seems absent in the book of Esther. And, and so the challenge with that is, can you, can we see God when he is not explicitly there? 
Are we able to see the unseen God? Right? And this idea is very practical for us because chances are, odds are, in, in your life, you have not seen an image of a visible God. You have not seen the visible Jesus right, in, in front of you. And, and so when God is unseen, do you have the ability to, to connect the dots in your life and, and know that God is present with you, that he is there, that he is working even though it might be behind the scenes? When God is unseen, are you able to persevere in our, in our seasons of, of waiting and wondering if, if God will make a way? Will you trust him? Will you choose to display faith? And that's exactly where we are in the book of Esther. You see, prior to chapter 5, we've seen this young woman named Esther who's promoted to, uh, to be the queen of Persia. She's promoted out of obscurity. Um, Esther is a young Jewish woman. She's promoted, uh, again, to be the queen of Persia through some, we'll say, compromising events. Okay? Uh, and then five years goes by, and she's been queen. Uh, there's silence in that time. And then we're introduced to some further drama. Right? The story tells us that there is this growing animosity between two men. One, uh, one man, his name was Haman. Okay, Haman, who was basically the prime minister of Persia at the time. And the other man's name is Mordecai, who was a Jew. He worked uh, in the king's palace, and we know that he was related to Esther. He was cousin uh, of Esther, but he raised her as his own daughter after her parents died. And then we learn that the animosity between these two individuals, it gets so bad, it gets so bad, that Haman manipulates the king of Persia, Ahasuerus, and he gets him to sign this edict. And the edict is, um, it's pretty extreme, uh, it's broad, it's this, that uh, this edict says every single Jewish person living in Persia must die. Every man Every woman, every child must die. There's going to be a genocide of the Jews. And so at that news, we, we see, we learn that Mordecai acts. Right? He takes action. He goes into this season of mourning. He's weeping. He's lamenting. And then through happenstance, uh, through a mediator, he has this conversation with Esther. We read about this last week. And in that dialogue, he challenges Esther to, I'll say it this way, to own her Jewishness. Uh, We know that she had hidden uh, herself uh, from the empire, from her husband, from the king, uh, from the very beginning. No one has any idea that she is Jewish. And now he says, reveal yourself. Uh, He challenges her and says, go to the king, go to him and ask for help. See what you can do about this edict, because maybe, maybe God has put you in this position. Maybe he has raised you up to this status for such a time as this. Maybe, maybe, Esther, God wants to use you 
in the redemption story and the saving of his people. And so at that, what is Esther's response? Well, again, we looked at this last week. We see that she's at this crossroads moment. What am I going to do? Am I going to continue to be a Persian? Live my life sort of hidden? Or am I going to own my Jewishness and go to the king? And at that crossroads moment, she decides to own her identity, to trust God. So she calls those around her and all the Jews in the capital of Susa to go into a time of three days of prayer and fasting, total fast, fasting from food and water. And she says in that, after that time, I'll go to the king. Um, I'm going to likely die doing this. You're not allowed to just go into the presence of the king, but I'll risk it. I'll go to him uh, for the sake of our people. So that's where we ended last week. And as we close that chapter, we're left waiting and wondering uh, what's going to happen next. Right? It's a wonderful story. So now as we, we pick things up, what we see from the very beginning is uh, the fasting time has ended. That's the context. Esther and others have sought God's will. Uh, they've sought his wisdom. And now we see Esther is ready for action. She's about to approach her husband, King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes. So this is how chapter 5 begins. It says this. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. So again, we, we see it's now the, the third day, meaning the prayer time, the fasting time is finished. And so Esther uh, gets dressed, right? She puts on the royal clothes. She, uh, she probably was uh, dressed very simply in her time of prayer and fasting. Maybe she was wearing sackcloth and ashes as well. We don't know, but we know now here she, she cleans herself up and, and she puts on the royal Persian dress, uh, she, she takes on the identity as the queen of Persia, and she shows up to the inner court, we're told. And you have to, you have to imagine uh, this place, this palace. Um, we know that uh, there was this huge curtain that separated the outer court from the inner court. So you approach this palace And before you got to the king, there was an outer court first. And there was this gigantic curtain that separated where the king was. So she gets past that. She has this conversation. I'm here to see the king. And then she enters into this huge throne room. And you can do like even like a Google image of this. Um, Archaeologists have dug up this area. And so we have an idea of what it looked like. But you can imagine... Um, In this room where the king sat, there was like 36 pillars, right? There was a pillar there and there was a pillar kind of hidden behind that wall, okay? But you can imagine these gigantic pillars, 36 of them. I mean, it's a really, really large, magnificent room. And she's at one end and we're told that he's at the other end of the room, right? There's a huge gap, a huge distance. And that's intentional, by the way. Because again, you're privileged to be there even be near his presence. That's the idea. 
And history also tells us, the historical record also tells us that in Persia, Xerxes, he wanted his throne to be really high, elevated. And so the king's throne was actually elevated off the ground, something like 10 feet or three meters off the ground. You can imagine like a basketball hoop, right? That's about where it was. And so now Esther's approaching that throne. He's kind of sitting up there real high, you know? You could feel the tension, right? By law, you're supposed to at least feel the tension if you don't. By law, she is not allowed to do this. She's not allowed to be beyond that curtain. By law, she should lose her life. She should die by going uninvited to the king. So right from the beginning, we are caught somewhere in the middle between hope and fear here. As Esther looks across the throne room and now walks, approaches the king. Yet at the same time, the same time, for Esther, this is so different, so different than the first time she approaches him, isn't it? At least the first time that's recorded that we have. The first time you remember, um, she's part of this like beauty pageant. And so she approaches him as sort of this, let's call it a passive pawn, um, compromising her, herself, hiding her faith. But this time she enters into that throne room and she's there as a Jew, boldly ready to die, walking towards him with hope that she might change her fate and the fate of her people. So she walks towards him, and how does the king respond? That's verse 2. It says this, And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther approached and touched the tip of that scepter. So there's not a lot of details here. There's probably a lot more that went into this, but... From verse 1 to verse 2, we can now breathe this sigh of relief. Like, oh, okay, the tension only lasted like a sentence. (laughs) Um, Esther gets in. She's not banished. She's not sentenced to death. In fact, Xerxes' heart we see here is actually warm towards her. He actually welcomes her in. And why? Why does he do that? Well, maybe, maybe it was partly her clothes. We don't know. Uh, before it was her good looks. Maybe he's reminded, oh, oh yeah, I remember you, right? Um, it doesn't say. But of course, ultimately we know, we know that Esther and her people's prayers, Esther's time of fasting, it's now at work here. God is on the scene. He's at work. After all, we know that that God has the king's heart, the king of Persia's heart, in his very hands. At least that's what Proverbs 21 tells us, right? It says this, it says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And God, he turns it wherever he will. Every leader, even our new president here in Korea, as I mentioned, ultimately he's in the hand of God. He can't do anything without the Lord's hand, okay? That's true here of Xerxes, certainly. So I believe that Esther genuinely now is trusting in that truth, 
that even though God is not mentioned here in the text, that again, he is at work. The, the providential hand of God is moving the king's heart now. And that's ultimately the answer as to why he's showing Esther favor. And we see here that this favor is displayed in uh, a somewhat, it's a, it's a little strange ritual. At least it's strange to us now in our modern day context. Very common to them. So what does he do? Well, he, he puts his staff out to her, this golden scepter, this golden staff. Uh, that represented himself. It, it's a symbol of who he is. Uh, that staff, that golden staff, it's a, it's a symbol of his power, of his authority, of his majesty. And again, we have to remember the scene here. He is very high up. And, and so he extends it down to her. And what that was saying or what that was displaying, this is an act of mercy, actually. Okay. He's showing her mercy here. It's really saying, you don't deserve. You don't deserve to be before me. You don't deserve to be in my presence, but I'm so gracious. Right? Such a good king that I'm going to allow you to stand before me right now. And then by her, by her touching it, reaching out to touch it, or um, other translations would say she didn't actually touch it, she kissed it, right? That by, by kissing it, she's in a, in a sense accepting that mercy. She's receiving that mercy. She's, she's demonstrating that she honors him, that she respects him and recognizes his authority. Well, then we get back to the text, verse 3, and the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? By the way, um, you should take note uh, that we don't see her referred to as queen very often in the text, especially capital Q, queen. So you should take note every time it says that. We see it here. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? See, her identity is starting to change. What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. So you sort of have the, the sense here that the king knew, I mean, he's not, you know, he's not totally stupid, right? He's, he's there for a reason. And he knew that Esther would not risk coming to him uninvited into his presence for nothing. Right? You don't just risk yourself, your life for nothing. And so he initiates this conversation. He says, what would you like, Esther, my queen? Right? What would you like? And he uses this phrase that was used by kings um, who were extravagantly wealthy right? and feeling very gracious. It's, a, it's an expression. He says, what do you want? He says, ask anything up to half of my kingdom. That's pretty extreme, right? He's basically saying, I have so much power, so much wealth that even if you took half of what I have, I'm still the greatest, right? That's essentially what he's saying. There's some boasting in himself in that. So even in his generosity, there's arrogance, okay? But basically he's saying, whatever you desire, whatever you desire, Esther, it's yours. Name it. It's yours. So she has a significant amount of favor here. And again, I believe it's God himself who puts Xerxes' heart in that place. And so knowing the story and knowing the behind the scenes, we get to look at this from behind the scenes. We are reading this and we 
should think this is her chance, right? Perfect. It worked out, right? She has the opportunity to ask for anything. So now's the moment. Ask for the edict to be reversed. Ask for the genocidal plan of the Jewish people to end. Right? Let him know that you're Jewish, Esther. And while you have his favor, by the way, how about asking that Haman be punished as well? How about that? That's what we expect and what we should expect. And so what happens? Verse 4. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. So wait a second. An invite to a feast? Really? Like, that's the best you can do, Esther. You've been fasting, praying, three days, total fast, and your idea here is to give this guy a party. After three days of fasting, that's the plan. It seems very anticlimactic to us, doesn't it? So the question is, like, does she get cold feet? Again, we don't know all the dialogue. Right? Did she get cold feet? Was she nervous before the throne? Right? Did she lose courage? Because it seems like, at least at first, that she's missed a golden opportunity to get what she wants. But what we're actually seeing and what we're about to see is that Esther is in total control of this moment. Certainly God is in control behind the scenes, but she's owning this. She's being very wise. She's being crafty, taking the time to set all this up in full confidence and trust in the Lord. So the king calls to Haman. They're at the feast that Esther had prepared. It was already set and ready. And then verse 6, And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, sound familiar, What is your wish? Like a genie or something, (laughs) It shall be granted to you. And, and what is your request? Here it is again. Even up to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And so we see here that the feast is winding down. The after dinner wine has come out, which is a common scene for the king and being with the king. You always give him wine, right? To make him in a good mood, I guess. And now he asks her again. All right. We've done the feast. We've done the eating. I'm feeling good. What do you want? Certainly it wasn't to feed me. So what do you want? And notice, though, the subtle detail. There's a shift in language here. It's no longer, it's changed. It's no longer just give me your request. It's what is your wish and it shall be granted to you. And so we're beginning to see here the wisdom of Esther's plan play out before us. Remember, she started with a simple ask. Come to my banquet. Right? It's already prepared for you. Come to my banquet. And now he asks again what she wants. And this must be it, right? This is the time. This is the moment for the big request. Verse 7. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, then cancel the edict. Save my people. I'm Jewish. And kill Haman. No. 
She says, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So not quite the request we are expecting once again, yeah? It's once again another meal, another feast. But, but catch the subtle difference in her response compared to the first time. There's so much wisdom here, so much tact in her language. Uh, the linguistic move here is, is brilliant. She lets the king know here that at this next feast, she says, oh, come to this next dinner, and there I'm going to answer you. Come to this next meal with me, and at that point, I'll share my request. And you can see the strategy here. She's, first of all, she has piqued the curiosity of the king. It's hard to surprise the king. He has everything. But there is this sense here that he's actually eager in anticipation, wanting to know what does she want. Like, this must be a really big deal. But look at this as well. She phrases her invitation in a very specific, conditional way. Notice it, that she actually calls on the king to commit himself in advance without ever hearing what the request is, right? We have to think about that. She says, if it pleases the king to grant my request, to give me what I want, then, then, if that pleases you, then come to the meal, come to the banquet. In other words, you flip that around. She's saying, if you come to the banquet, King Xerxes, if you decide, if you choose tomorrow to show up to the feast, it is a display, it is showing, it's a sign that you are pleased to give me whatever I ask you. You see that? And in that culture, he would have known, he would have picked up on this. It, it would have been dishonoring. We have to understand the culture. It's, it's closer, not Western. It's a lot closer to where we are. Honor and shame. It would have been totally dishonoring for him to say, okay, I'll go to the feast and do what you want, but then hear the request and not do it. It's honor, shame. Those of us in the West, like from an individualistic culture, right, who don't have any honor or shame, <laughs> okay, let's be real, but like, yeah, what do you want, girl? Like, what, what do you want? I'll give you anything. She's like, I want you to do this. I'm like, heck no, you're not getting that, right? We, no shame, whatever, right? Whatever, no way. But like here, culturally, right? Like, well, I already gave my word. I already said I have to do this. I don't want to look bad in front of people. So I don't want to do it, but I'll do it anyway. That's actually the culture. And so again, that subtlety here is brilliant. It's so wise, right? So wise. So in a sense, we see now that Esther actually has King Xerxes right where she wants him. He's, he's actually trapped right where she wants him. He has committed to give her whatever, whatever she wants just by showing up at the next banquet. Right? There is a lot of wisdom in this. Right? God has, has clearly, God has clearly worked in her heart and given her Deep insight through her prayer and fasting. And then it's really interesting. It's really interesting because the scene now suddenly shifts. It's like cut, cut scene and then we go to another environment. We go from the palace to now we go into Haman's home. 
Um, if you are reading this whole story in one sitting, which, by the way, I had mentioned in the first week of this series, like a month and a half ago, you should do that. I still think you should. At some point, even after we finish, read this whole story, the whole narrative in one sitting. But when you get to this point, it almost feels like an interruption to the main plot. Um, like it's just extending the tension and the suspense, like on purpose or something. It's a good, good writer, I guess. So here's what happens. Verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. So English translation, modern day, is Haman is flying high, right? He's flying high here. He's just finished with one banquet after a very special invitation. And now he has just been informed that he is invited to another banquet. And it's very exclusive. There's only two invitations, him and the king. Everything seems to be going his way, right? His, his position is secure. He is in good standing with the king. And now apparently, maybe he didn't know this before, and there's no reason to think that this was the case, but now it seems as though he has favor of the queen as well. And then on his way home, this happens. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath. Where there is actually rage. It's about the strongest word that we have for anger. Filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. So everything is right for Haman, except for this. Mordecai is like a thorn in his flesh, if you will. He's an annoyance. Everything's good, but that one guy, right? We see here that just like before, um, when Haman enters a room, everyone shudders. Everyone bows down. Everyone is filled with fear. Right? They're, they're admiring him, but also at the same time, they know he's so powerful that he could kill them in an instant. Everyone is doing this, everyone but Mordecai. Mordecai is standing there, and Mordecai has no fear of him at all. Remember, the edict has been passed. Mordecai, you're dead. You're a dead man walking. And I'm the one who did this to you. And yet, Haman walks by him again, and even in the face of death, knowing, knowing the power and authority that Haman has, Mordecai stands there firm, unshaken. And of course, we know Haman was upset before, but this just brings up all those feelings of anger again. He's furious this time. And so what does he do? Well, he restrains himself. He shows a little bit of self-control, but, but it's interesting because then he, he goes home and uh, the best way I could say it, he, he calls his wife and his friends to him to like stroke his ego. Like, I, I need somebody to like, hey, this one guy, like you could mention like how childish, right? You have all this power, authority, everyone's bowing down before you, but like one guy does this, you go home and you have to call your wife and all your friends to tell you how great you are. That's what's happening. 
I need you guys to just like give me some words of affirmation. That's my love language or something, right? I don't know. Right? I need to be puffed up. And then, and then it's interesting because we don't hear what the friends and his wife say initially. The text allows us to hear Haman's self-promotional rant. He boasts in himself first. Verse 11 and 12. And Haman recounted to them So he brings, can you imagine this? He brings all his his wife and his friends before him. And he recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he advanced him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. So he says there, he's like, oh, I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling down. Come to me. And then he goes into this dialogue do you guys know how much money I have? Look at all my money. Like, I'm, so, I'm doing so well. How about my, my heritage? I'm so blessed with all these sons. Right? Life is good. I'm so successful in my workplace. I don't know about you guys. Right? Says to his wife, do you know who you're married to? Right? He's saying, look at me. Right? Look at all of my favor. Verse 12. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther Let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow, also I am invited by her together with the king. So this is quite the arrogant, self-centered rant, isn't it? And there is so much we know from this side of the table, right? There is so much irony in these words because, of course, we know that Haman has no idea what's going on behind the scenes. He has no idea that Esther is a Jew. He has no idea that Esther is related to his arch enemy. He has no idea that she and her people have been fasting for three days, seeking the God of the universe's intervention for the deliverance of his people. He has no idea that Esther's plan for his demise, his ruin, has already been set in motion. It's coming to fruition. He doesn't know. But then Haman reaches his, I think, this is his low point. Even with all that he has, all his worldly favor, look at verse 13. He says this, yet all this is worth nothing to me. All that I have, all that's been done for me, it is nothing. It's worthless so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So with all that Haman has, all his wealth, all his power, all his authority, he still is not satisfied. Why? Because one person in the kingdom, tens of thousands of people, one person, one, won't respect him. And so... His wife and friends come up with this great master plan. We can see two plans now happening. There's Esther and the Jewish people's plans. And now we see Haman 
and his family and friends' plan. Here's the plan. Mordecai already has a death sentence with all the other Jews. But why wait? That's what they say. Let's have him killed tomorrow, even before your next feast. What are they going to do? They say, let's hang him, the gallows. Um, By the way, um, and this could become important later, I guess, uh, but gallows, we know this, that the Persians were actually, the Romans, say it this way, the Romans often get credit uh, for crucifixion. But we know actually that the Persians were the ones that really invented it. And we're seeing that here. The Romans perfected it, but the Persians really invented it. And so what they're basically saying is this. Build this, let's say it's a crucifix. It was probably just a single pillar, though. Build it 80 feet high. That's 25 meters for everybody who's not American. Okay, Huge. Huge. Build it up off the ground and hang him on it. Basically crucify him to the top of it so that everyone can see what happens to those who don't bow down to you, who don't respect you. And, and we see here that, that Haman, Haman loves this. Right? It just feeds right into his ego. It feeds it. Right? And at the same time, right, it adds a bit of drama to the story, right? Because Esther's plan, we've already said, it's in motion. She's about to, the next day, ask for the edict to be overturned. But Haman has now said, and his plan is, we're going to put Mordecai to death before the feast even begins. And so we're left again with attention. What's going to happen? Is Esther's wise, calculated plan going to cost Mordecai his life? We're just left wondering. Because chapter 5 ends with Haman going to bed. That's how it ends. Pleased. You can imagine him like under his covers, right? Looking up at the ceiling. Yeah, he's pleased. Pleased at the thought of seeing Mordecai killed the next day. And at the same time, he's just joyful. Oh, I can't wait. I'm going to be able to celebrate tomorrow at the banquet. Right? Be me and the king and the queen. Everyone is going to respect me. Not one person will be left who doesn't respect me and honor me. And that's how it ends. So at this point now, we are, we're left wondering, what are we to take away from all of this? How can we apply what we've read here in chapter 5 to our own lives? I think there's a couple things. A few major takeaways. So we'll run through these quickly. Number one, we see here, how do we apply this to our lives? Esther's story, the book of Esther, teaches us that God uses the weak. God uses the weak. As we read this section of Esther's story, I, I, think, I think it's very important for us to remember that she goes to King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, she goes to him in a season of weakness, physically. She's been doing a total fast for three days. No food, no water. So you could just try to imagine what that would be like, what that would feel like. I would venture to guess no one here has done three days, no food, no water. Right? Some of you, I don't want to see what you look like after you miss one meal. All right? Three days, three nights, no food, no water. Can you imagine, right? The weakness, right? How parched she would be, right? She, 
she's in that season. So there is a very real sense that she is, she's just, she's physically empty, but she is fully depending on the Lord. And the biblical principle here for us is this, that in weakness, there is strength. That in weakness, there is strength. See, we know this. We know that God is in the business. He's in the business of choosing the weak, specifically to display his glory. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, but God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Because we can imagine, and even reading this story initially, if we didn't know the end, which most of us do, we read the story, you look at the situation, you look at Esther and you would say, this is so foolish what she's trying to do, what she's attempting to do. You can't go into the king like this. You can't go to him uninvited. You're nothing, powerless. But we know God chooses what is foolish in the world, in the eyes of the world, to shame those who are wise in the eyes of the world. He chooses what is seen as weak in the world to shame, to shame what looks strong in the world. Amen? Esther approaches the king as nothing, empty. She has nothing to offer him. She is weak, no power, no authority, nothing. Zilp, zilch, nada. She was totally at the will of the king totally at his mercy. And so again, I can say rightfully, in the world's eyes, this is foolish. It's a foolish plan. But we know that in God's eyes, there's a deeper plan here. And so I read one commentator on this. He said this, Esther voluntarily descended into weakness as she goes into this period of fasting and praying. And in this, she gives us a way of life to follow. Esther descends voluntarily. She chooses to bring herself low. She chooses to position herself weak. And in that, she displays for us a life to follow. So we cannot miss this. Once Esther embraced the reality, once it clicked for her that if I perish, I perish, that I am nothing, I have nothing to offer, I have nothing to give. Once she humbly embraced the reality that she could do nothing, that she is utterly weak, then and only then could God change her heart. And then and only then could God use her for his plans and for his purposes. And listen, listen, we are so encouraged by our culture to seek to be strong, right? We are so encouraged by our, our culture to kind of muster up the strength and energy, regardless how you feel or how you're actually doing, to be independent, to be, it's probably the top, I don't know, it's off the top of my head right now, top three sins of the West is this, this, uh, this God of independence, right? Self-promotion, right? You can do it on your own. That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel to be strong will, to muster up enough energy on your own, or at least if, if that's not the case, we're at least expected to put on this facade of strength, 
right? This mask of strength. And so I can even, if I'm not careful, I can come to a place like this, a place of worship with God's people. And, and during the greeting time, people can ask me, hey, how are you? How are things going? And you could put on this facade because you think you're supposed to. Oh, I'm doing really well. Things are going well, right? I'm taking it day by day, right? And really the reality is you're miserable. You're not doing well. You're weak, right? But, but we're not allowed. We, we believe at least. It's a lie from our enemy. We don't believe that we have permission to say that to one another. And to be honest, how many of us, like if, like if I came up to you after the service and we're like, hey, how's it going, Pastor Jay? And how is it? And I just put my hand on your shoulder. I know COVID, but I put my hand on your shoulder. I was like, oh, hey, here's, here's the truth. I am, I'm at the end. There's a good chance, like, I probably need, like, six months sabbatical here. Otherwise, I'm just going to quit. Like, what would you say? Uh, I'm praying for you, you know. <laughs> what would you say? Are you getting lunch? You know what? What would we do, right? The majority of us probably don't even, wouldn't even know how to handle, handle something like that. Handle the truth. Handle how we're actually really feeling. But, you know, the reality is, like, we're all in the season, those of you watching on, online even, right? We're all in the season. It's, it's exhausting. It's been exhausting. I'm so tired of all of these ups and downs. I'm so tired of not knowing which news channel I can watch. It's ridiculous, right? Don't you feel that? Does anybody feel that way, right? Like, the cases are really high, like, the highest they've ever been. But then I have one group of people who is telling me, like, it doesn't matter. Everyone just gets sick, and let's move on, and we're good. And then I have another group of people who is like, well, you know, like, more people died yesterday than in two years of COVID. Like, and then trying to find myself in between. And by the way, trying to shepherd and minister to this group and to this group, right? You want to change my You can take my place. Right? And, but, but I'm not saying, and I'm not saying that what I have is harder than you. I'm just saying we're all in that place in some way, shape, or form, right? In seasons. Right? You're expected to be strong. We aren't supposed to let people see our weaknesses. But, but the reality of the gospel, the reality of the gospel is this. This is what God says to us. He says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says this, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content, look at this, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions. I have peace in calamities. Why? Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Not when I appear to be strong, then I'm strong. When I'm actually strong and have it all together, then I am strong. No. When you realize that you are weak, you are weak. That's not going to make a very encouraging Instagram 59 seconds. You are weak. I am weak. Nothing. You and I have nothing to bring to the table. So what does that look like for you? Do you you even know? Do you know that you're weak? 
Have you humbled yourself truly? Have you made yourself low? Why? Because you are low? Because God sees you as low? No, he loves you. He loves you. Why are we made low? So that Jesus, so that Christ may be elevated in my life. That's why I am made low. Because I am nothing in comparison to him. And I am at his mercy. It's only by his grace that he extends his hand to me and invites me in. Do you understand that today? Maybe today God is saying to you that it's time, it's time for you to stop pushing. It's time for you to stop pressing. It's time for you to stop putting forth your own clever plans. You got it all figured out what the next year, three, five, 10, 20 years retirement's all gonna look like. It's all figured out. If I can just manipulate this and do this and take these right steps, then it's good. Stop. Stop. Maybe, maybe instead of trying to live by your own strength and your own wisdom, it's time to take a season to step back. Maybe once again to fast, maybe to pray, to let that physical weakness inform your spiritual weakness. Listen, we have promises all throughout the scriptures, that he will bring strength to our humility. He will do that. He will bring strength to those who who humble themselves in their weakness. And so let's acknowledge our dependence and our need for him. Through Esther, we see God uses the weak. He is going to use Esther here in a mighty way in the weeks to come. He will use her. On the other hand, we see here in this narrative that God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. As we work through this story, we're seeing and we are continuing to see that Haman is a visible example. He's actually like his dictionary definition. He is a textbook illustration of someone with a foolish heart. A proud heart. If you want to see pride in the Bible, this is a good one, right? Someone asks you again, like, what's a good example of pride in the Bible? Now you can remember, Haman. He, his life is totally centered, totally fixated on himself. And, and listen, being proud of heart, being proud of heart is perhaps one of, if not the most dangerous place that you could ever be in your life. This is so serious. So serious. Proverbs 18.12 warns us that before a downfall, before your ruin, the heart is proud. But humility comes before honor. Or Proverbs 27.2 says this, let another, let another praise you and not your own mouth. A stranger and not your own lips. In other words, Speaking highly of yourself, boasting in who you are and what you've done, it just exposes your proud and your foolish heart. And we are seeing these Proverbs actually come to life in Esther's story, right? Haman is boasting in himself here. 
He believes that he deserves to be honored. And in the midst of that, we know that his downfall has already been set in motion. See the irony here? This proverb is speaking truth directly to this story. He's boasting in himself and his downfall has already started. See, Haman, again, he has no idea. He has no idea that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He has no idea that whoever whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted in the kingdom. There is such a, a stark, just obvious contrast here between Haman and Esther, right? This text, it's specifically speaking to the contrast between these two individuals. Esther's confidence is in the Lord. Haman's is in himself. Esther is resist, is resting in, Esther is resting in God's control. Haman is resting only in his own control. And by the way, that's why Haman's life is so fragile. Because his life has been built upon himself and what he can earn for himself, which actually means that he has no foundation at all. I mean, again, think about this. It only took one man, one event to shatter his life, to crumble him. Just one. He had everything that this world has to offer, but even in that and with that, he has no peace. No peace. And so this is a good word. It's a good word of warning for us today. Haman's life, his example should, it it begs the question to us, what are we trusting in? Where is your confidence? Where have you placed your sense of rest? Where are you having faith? Where, not are you, where are you having faith? In your own capacities and your own abilities. Where do you show even the slightest glimpse of pride in your life? Where is it? Find it, recognize it, uncover it, root it out, repent of it, and humbly bring that before the Lord before it's too late. And then our final point for today, I believe Esther 5 teaches us that true faith is active faith. True faith, real faith, genuine faith, is active faith. I want us to notice here once again that even in the face of great danger, though her future was uncertain, even when the situation didn't make sense, Esther's faith caused her to act. Her her faith was put on display, in other words, It was not passive. What I mean to say is we see in this story that Esther acted on what she said she believed. Her her trust in God caused her to move. And of course, we see examples of this all throughout the Bible, right? I can't help but think of Hebrews chapter 11, 
where we find this, like this hall of faith, if you will. It mentions there, you can read it later, it mentions there all these men and, and women who again and again trust in the Lord, even through the most difficult circumstances and severe hardships. Right? We learn over and over that God would call them, these men and women, he would call them, he would tell them to follow him, or to do something very, very specific. And by faith in his promises, they would go to him. And they would go be with him, doing what he asked in obedience. In trust, they would, let's say it this way, in trust, they were willing to take the risk. And listen, what was true of them, what was true of Esther, will be true of us. There will be times, there will be times where our faith will be put to the test. That's a fact. And it's in those moments, it's how we respond to those moments. It's then that we can see if we have true and genuine faith. See, Esther, by faith, believed in the promises of God. She believed Mordecai that maybe God had placed her in the position and authority to be the queen for such a time as this. And that led her to action. It led her to pray, to fast. It ultimately led her to risk her life and to go to the king. So this is Esther's faith in action here in chapter 5, meaning we now know she has authentic belief, that her faith was real. You see that? And I believe what her story asks of us is, where might we need to step out in faith? Where might God be calling you to follow him in this season? What risk, what risk might he be asking you to take in your life? Maybe God, maybe God is calling some of us, maybe even just one, he's calling you to take the gospel to a people who have never heard the good news of Jesus before. Maybe he's doing that. To, even now, he's confirming that. He's speaking that over your life. Maybe some of you online. Maybe he, he wants some of you, especially in an international community, he wants some of you to take the risk and choose, make a conscious choice to stay here in Korea to root yourself here, to invest yourself here, even though your family and the majority of your friends are back where you, wherever you used to call home. You're like, no, I'm going to root myself here, even though it's uncomfortable, it's not perfect. I'm going to root myself here for the sake of God's kingdom and the gospel. Maybe that's your risk. Maybe you feel like God is calling you to, to stay at a job that you think you should leave. Everyone around you is saying like, wow, it's, it makes sense you to leave that job. Like you should transition, take that promotion, go to that next step. And maybe like, no, the risk is I need to stay. God has a purpose for me here. Or maybe he's calling you to leave a job where everyone thinks you should stay. Maybe for some of our, our couples here, Married couples, maybe God is calling you in this season to consider adoption. It's a risk. 
Right? There is a huge need. You need to know this. There is a huge need in our city, in this country, for that. Huge need. And so many of us have the capabilities and the resources to be able to do something about it. Maybe God's calling you to that now. It's a risk. So where is God calling you to action in this season? Where is he calling you to display your faith? Because listen, faith is never passive. Faith is always being put into action. Not that we're earning anything, okay? Understand me. We don't earn our position. We don't earn our place before God. But we're showing by what we do that our faith is real. Does that make sense? And we learn that here from Esther. And so as we close today, as we close, the message today is fairly simple. Remember that God uses the weak and that he opposes the proud. That God is looking, he's searching for those who are humble so that he can work through and in their lives and ultimately display his glory. And beyond that, this story is encouraging all of us to put our faith in action. We might not always see God. We might be uncertain. Life and things around us might not always make sense. We might even have some doubt But true faith is active faith. So let's believe in him. Let's let's trust him. And let's allow that trust to move us to follow him with whatever he wants us to do and wherever he wants us to go. Amen? Let me pray for you.